Welcome to the Leading Past Limits podcast. We share lessons learned from the hard-won experience of accomplished professionals who have placed service before self. I'm Kumar Kibble, an executive coach and the principal at GuideQuest, a leadership coaching company. I've been passionate about developing leaders since graduating from West Point more than 30 years ago and have led high-performing teams as a military officer, special agent, diplomat, and senior executive. Join us in this episode featuring retired U.S. Army Major General Byron Bagby. He shares his journey from ROTC cadet to general officer, as well as his experiences in the corporate boardroom. Be sure to subscribe and don't miss out on lessons learned from the real world School of Hard Knocks. Our guest today is retired Major General Byron Bagby. He's the managing partner of BMB Solutions, a consulting firm specializing in executive leadership development and coaching, as well as strategy development. General Bagby served over 33 years in the U.S. Army before retiring in 2011. His impactful career included molding cadets at West Point while serving on the faculty and staff. And that's where I met him and <laughs> sought his mentorship as a young cadet with the desire to lead paratroopers in the 82nd Airborne, mm-hmm. a trail he had already blazed in exemplary fashion. General Bagby went on to serve in numerous command and staff assignments, including at the Pentagon on the Joint Staff and on the Department of the Army Staff. During his career, he held key positions, including Commandant of Joint Forces Staff College, Chief of the Office of Military Cooperation in Cairo, Egypt, and Director of Operations for the NATO Joint Force Command, Brunson. He currently serves on several corporate and advisory boards. General Bagby is a life member of the Veterans of Foreign Wars, and he's qualified as an Army Ranger and a Master Parachutist. Byron, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much, Kumar, and and thanks for inviting me. And I know you've got a lot of options from whom you can select to invite, and inviting me means a lot. And thanks for what you've done for our great nation in uniform and the 82nd Airborne Division, what you've done in the Balkans, and as well as serving in uh, Homeland Security and ICE uh, and, and doing those difficult jobs that you were doing. So thank you very much for what you've done for our great country, Kumar. Well, sir, thank you for that. It means a lot coming from you. I'll tell you that um, when I talked about the mentoring, uh, as we discussed at breakfast a number of months ago, uh, when I was getting ready to graduate, you'll recall I went around interviewing all of the tactical officers in the regiment and was looking for advice. And uh, and some of the really the perspective and the, and the and the troop focused uh, guidance you gave me uh, served me well, and mm-hmm. frankly served me well throughout my entire career. So I I thank you for that. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, Thank yeah. you. Well, so let's start at the beginning. What what led you to pursue a military career? Well, Kumar, you need to know that I grew up in a small town in Missouri, the same house where my parents lived, where my mom passed away a few years ago, same telephone number. So I didn't get to travel and see much of the world. And I decided to pursue a military career so I could lead people, so I could manage resources, and so I could see a large part of the world that I probably would not get to see in other professions. And I found it exciting. When I was in college as an undergraduate, I was in Army ROTC and then talking with the cadre there and seeing what they did and learning from their experiences uh, that I thought that would be a very attractive field for me to go into. So I joined the military and became a second lieutenant and served for almost three and a half decades, but just a chance to lead, manage resources and see a part of the world. Yeah, yeah. And you you mentioned uh, being commissioned as a, as a lieutenant. What was your first assignment? And, and 
what you mentioned being going through the ROTC program. Would you share with us what prepared you for that role? Well, I'll tell you, my first assignment was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and a very, very special place with high standards. You've got to be physically fit no matter what your specialty is. You must be proficient at your duties tactically and technically. And I must tell you, I was lucky. I had a chance to go to airborne school and ranger school as a cadet. Uh, yeah. Back in those days, they gave very few slots to West Point cadets and ROTC cadets. And I qualified for uh, one of those billets and was able to graduate. So I earned a ranger tab as a cadet. And I think that going to ranger school as my first military experience was challenging, but I found I liked it. And when I got to Fort Bragg, I fit right in with fitness and doing difficult, tough training. So I think that the cadre we had there at Westminster College, the ROTC cadre, taught me about leadership and then having the confidence in me to send me to Ranger School as a cadet to come back with a tab that prepared me for the arduous duties at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. You know, that's an interesting, I, I did not remember that you had gone through Ranger School as a cadet. And the thing that's re very striking about that, that many listeners will not know, is that leaves zero room for error, as I recall. You, you, you don't have the time to recycle as most people do at Ranger School. So that's also another impressive achievement. That, that's correct. Uh, in the regular Army, you might be able to recycle one or two classes, but in you're there for the summer as a cadet. And if you don't make it, uh, well, you've got to come back and try again. But luckily, I didn't get hurt, and I was able to pass all the requirements and earn my Ranger tab successfully. Yeah. And you mentioned it preparing you for the arduous assignment. What what did you learn about leadership from that first assignment? You know, what obviously you had studied principles uh, and you'd had the opportunity, I'm certain, to practice them as a cadet in various leadership assignments. But what did you learn specifically uh, on active duty with with troops? Leadership is all about people. I don't care what sector you're leading in, whether it's a nonprofit organization, a university, a football team, or a Fortune 500 company, or a military unit. It comes down to people. And you understand people, you get to know them, understand what their challenges are, you develop them and help them improve in their duties and their personal life. So it became apparent to me, Kumar, early on in my time at Fort Bragg that leadership being a platoon leader is all about people, learning about them, uh, helping them understand how they play a role in the larger team. And uh, that stayed with me throughout my entire career and beyond. And I use that today when I'm coaching uh, leaders and on the boards I serve on. It, it's about people ultimately. So mm -hmm. that, uh, that two-syllable word resonated with me at my first assignment at Fort Bragg, Kumar. Hmm. The, and what uh, I, I know I found for my first assignment as a platoon leader at Bragg, uh, the NCOs were just top notch. And in, in some respects, I placed myself in their hands as far as helping to mold, mold, you know, the type of lieutenant that they deserve. <laughs> People find it surprising, but the person who taught me the most about being a successful Army officer is the first first sergeant I had. First Sergeant Craig Dalton, Vietnam veteran, master parachutist, uh, was, even though it was an artillery unit, he had a CIB from Vietnam. He taught me about what it means to be an officer. He taught me how to 
train leaders. He taught me how to use NCOs to get them to maximize a unit's performance. And uh, retired Command Sergeant Major Craig Dalton, then a first sergeant, he taught me how to be an officer. Um, taught me how to shine boots back in those days, hmm. uh, which you had to uh, do at Fort Bragg a lot. Had to look professional, but really a top quality NCO. And I must tell you, my plan was to do my four years in the Army, complete my obligation, and go to law school. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be an attorney. Mm -hmm. And I took the LSAT, scored very high, applied to two law schools, got into both of them. And Kumar came down to a two-week period where I had to decide to either take my law school slot or stay in the Army. And the person that convinced me to stay in was First Sergeant Dalton. Mm. He talked to me, You're, you'll be a good company commander. Why don't you stay in and long enough to command a company? And then if you decide to get out, that law school slot will still be there. But he's the reason why I became the officer that I did is because he taught me and the other lieutenants in the, in the artillery battery to be good officers. But he's the what, one that had the most profound effect on me. What what led to that effect? Like what made you respect and trust him so much? What were his his you know features of his character or or his investment in you? Would you share a little bit more about that? He would listen. Mm. He would, the company the battery commander would tell us to do something and then you're on your own to figure it out. And we'd go to him and say, hey top, how, how do we do this? And he would coach you say go see the supply sergeant put in a request for a range or ammunition or whatever it might be. But he would coach you, listen to what your problem was, and give you ways to mitigate the impact of some negative outcome. But really, but he would listen. And a lot of people don't listen. Um, but he would listen to you and then help you solve whatever your challenge was and help you get the job done. But he connected with myself and other lieutenants in the company and uh, developed all of us. And, uh, you know, uh, we uh, stayed in contact until he passed away about 15 years ago or so, but uh, really a top quality non-commissioned officer. Yeah, yeah. And they are so instrumental in informing lieutenants. I just recently reconnected with uh, First Sergeant Warren Christopher, who was the top, you know, he was First Sergeant in my company and uh, hard <laughs> as woodpecker lips. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, you had referenced kind of, you know, the uh, tough challenges in terms of the, in that first assignment. And obviously, throughout your career, you faced uh, difficulties and I'm certain setbacks, as we all do. How do you remain resilient during adversity? Well, the first thing I will tell you is my five core values are efficiency, independence, uh, learning, diversity and resilience. Those are my five core values that guide me uh, and have the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, so resilience being one of them, I try to create coping strategies and share with others. That's the leadership behavior that causes my core value of resilience to come alive. Mm -hmm. That's how I live that particular value. And I spend time trying to understand what the issue is first Mm -hmm. and identify what the problem is, what's the obstacle, what adverse action is going on that I need to correct. And then I implement some kind of coping strategy to navigate that way. And that's my resilience mechanism. But one of my core values is resilience and it's supporting core, uh, it's supporting leadership behavior is create coping strategies and share with others. 
but mm. I spend time trying to identify what the problem is and then uh, work toward identifying a strategy to work around that particular uh, issue. You know, and let me ask you about that because, uh, and this is from the standpoint of just communication, mm -hmm. because um, I've, I've read about Admiral Stockdale and his yes. time at the Hanoi Hilton for seven years in Vietnam and, and the social tap code that they use to maintain social relationships. But one of the things that Jim Collins featured in his business book, uh, Good to Great, mm -hmm. was the Stockdale paradox. And, and Stockdale talked about when, when he was asked who made it out and who didn't. And he said, that's easy, the optimists. But what he meant by that were the ones that um, said, oh, we'll be out by Christmas. And then Christmas came and went and they're still there. Oh, we'll be out by Easter. He said the ones that, that, that really kind of got through it were ones that faced the brutal facts and design strategies to deal with that, to accept that, but but uh, to never doubt that you'll prevail in the end, but to recognize and understand just how tough it will be as you go through it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That that. But you, you've got to. Uh, I'm an optimist. I'm a realist, but I'm an optimist, and I just try to see the bright side of things and try to look that uh, look at uh, a situation that I'm I'm going to get through this. And I will find a way to navigate these difficult waves that I'm swimming through right now and find a way to get through this. But I'm an optimist, ultimately, and just try to take a deep breath, identify what the issue is and work through that. And that's how I try to create my own resilience mechanism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about the demands that your career has played? I mean, you... Uh, you're a combat veteran. You've been mobilized uh, throughout your career. Um, what about like work-life balance or integration? Uh, how? What are some strategies that have worked for you in terms of, uh, because that's a component of resilience, of course. I don't think I ever got that right. I mean, I must tell you, I look back on my career and long hours going to the field for training exercises, going to a, a combat training center, Kumar, I will tell you, I don't think I ever got that right. And I've talked to friends of mine who mentioned the same thing, that they never got it right. I tried to make an effort, if I could, to go to my kids' events, soccer matches, Boy Scout events, uh, Girl Scout events. I'd help my daughter sell Girl Scout cookies. I must have bought and, bought and eaten uh, a thousand boxes of cookies over the years. But I, I try to go to my kids' events when I could. Sometimes you can't. But if I was in the office doing work and my son had a soccer match at 5.30, I would leave the office and go watch him play. And if I had to go back, I would. And if I did not, go on home. But I don't think I ever got that right. But the philosophy I tried to work toward was I would try to work at home as hard as I worked in the office. Mm -hmm. Mowing the lawn, spend time with the children, playing catch with my son, kicking a soccer ball with my daughter, uh, take my kids out for uh, um, ice cream or something like that. But my, I tried to work toward a philosophy of working as hard at home as I do in the office. It didn't always work out that way, but I tried to reach that goal. But I, I must tell you, I never really got that mechanism, that balance right. And I so tried hard. So that and I'm curious about that because I, I, you know, we struggled with that in terms of my career. I mean, when, when I was 
away. My, my wife, you know, Laura would set up the uh, iPad on the dinner table so I could participate in the family meal. Uh, I, we, I would sing to the kids via iPad, you know, for bedtime and stuff like that. But when I look at it, um, I, I see some things I might have done differently, but, but you know, the, the requirements of the job made it very difficult. And I'm just curious, as you look back, is there anything you could have done differently? The expectation is that you will be there and you'll get the job done as a, an operations officer of a battalion, as a battalion commander, a brigade XO. You're being relied upon to get the job done, whether it's maintenance or a training plan or, or preparing for an exercise. And whether that takes you 24 hours to get it done, that's the expectation. And, and, and there are times that you just can't break away. As difficult as it is, and I must tell you, in this phase of my life as a consultant, one reason why I went into a consultancy and not working for a, a Fortune 500 company where I could make a lot more money is so I can pick and choose when I, when I, uh, when I spend time with the family. My daughter had a, a son last summer, and my wife and I took out, off and drove out there for about two weeks, and we've been out there four times since. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and we'll yeah. go out there again. But if I work for a major company and we had a program review coming up or a major project, uh, you know, my boss would say, well, Byron, we need you here because we're working on getting another contract. But one reason why I went into consultancy is so I could pick and choose the projects that I work on. Right. And I can I can uh, meet that core value of independence and setting my own standards, dividing, deciding how I use my own time. Well, I mean, I think you've nailed it. I mean, I, you know, I, I like to tell people I'm working for the best boss I have ever worked for. <laughs> <laughs> we are 100% aligned. That's right. Uh, and that is that that is the advantage, the blessing of, of being an independent consultant or whatever you know, entrepreneur, sole, sole proprietor, whatever it may be. It is nice to have that flexibility because that that's a uh, um, that was always my my biggest frustration and something I still regret a little bit in terms of the demands of some of the assignments that I've had. And, and I'm, and I'm sure, you know, I mean, you've, you've had incredibly demanding assignments and, you know, the inability sometimes to be there for special occasions, was, yes. you know, that the kids still bring up, you know, cause <laughs> they do. They, you know, they may understand, but it doesn't mean that they're still not sad about it, you know, and, That's it, true. and yeah, That's yeah. true. That's right. Well, let me let me uh, let me ask you um, what's what's the biggest misconception about being a general officer? People think that being a general is easy. That you ride around in a sedan all day or a suburban, you fly around in helicopters, you go to meetings and tell people what to do, then you read the paper all, all afternoon, you have a cup of coffee. They think it's easy, but being a general, you don't have much control over your time. You are a senior government official. And even though you may be assigned to the 82nd Airborne or the 1st Cavalry Division, you can be sent to give a speech somewhere or lay a wreath or preside at a funeral. Uh, and that may come from the Army Secretary to go out and do something like that. But uh, being a general is very, very difficult. And I must tell you, I applied for a position about seven years ago. And I was not selected. I was a finalist, but I didn't get the job. And some feedback I received about a year later is that 
the selection committee felt that generals don't do any work. They aren't used to working. And my response to the person that told me that is, I was not always a general. I was a captain, lieutenant, a major, a colonel. So, so they, they think that being a general is easy. Yes, you have a lot of authority and can make decisions and have resources at your disposal, but uh, it's not that easy. You're under the gun every day to do something for somebody, but, but also you can make a difference. You can make a difference in helping someone with an assignment or getting their record straight for a, a promotion board or what have you. Uh, and also mentor and coach, but people think that being a general as well, you come to work at nine o'clock in the morning and read a cup of coffee and read the paper and then get in a sedan and ride around for a little bit and then go home. Yeah. It's not quite that simple. You know, one of the things that strikes me as you say that is the, um, uh, you know, my classmate, Jeff, who served with you in the 101st, oh, yeah. and he was an aide de camp. And it was in that assignment, he he saw the demands of that flag officer position and, and, and started to make some choices depending on, you know, based on what he wanted to, how available he wanted to be to his family. So it's, it's, yeah. yeah I will it's tell you, Jeff, Jeff was on the way. Uh, he was out there when I was a brigade commander. And he had the right assignments, was, I'd say, one of the top captains, if not the top captain in the entire division. But mm -hmm. you make a decision about work-life balance, yeah. and uh, you have to make a, a choice as to which way you want to go. Yeah. Now, um, one of the key positions you had served in was <clears throat> as Commandant of the Joint Forces Staff College. What is the mission of the Joint Forces Staff College? Okay. Um, the mission, the, the short mission is that all may labor as one, joint, multinational, multi-service, uh, interagency. The, the actual mission, I just happen to have it here, is to educate national security professionals to plan and execute operational level joint, multinational, and interagency operations to instill a commitment to joint objectives, teamwork, and perspectives. Um, that was a incredible assignment for me because I had students that were from the CIA and Homeland Security. I had all five services. I had DA civilians. Uh, we had a few international students in most of our programs. Uh, that was a great assignment to see from an academic standpoint how we teach joint multinational and interagency type of coordination and uh, planning. It was a great assignment. I enjoyed that, Kumar. Well, and it's a critical one because, I mean, certainly post 9-11, I mean, we've had to kind of break down, we won't call them stovepipes, we'll call them silos <laughs> of excellence. We've had to break them down and encourage, you know, uh, fuller information sharing and um, the threat is asymmetric and it requires, you know, creative responses. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, you know, I, it is really key and I'm curious just from an academic perspective and also just from your practical experience, what is essential to breaking down those barriers so that you have that kind of whole of government response to, to whatever the challenge may be? Everyone brings something different to the table. And I think that every player in an uh, operation like that, whether it's disaster relief, combat operations, or peacekeeping, everyone brings something different. And every player in that effort must understand what the others can bring. Mm -hmm. um, Every service or every element of the interagency brings something different. 
And to understand how they can all fit together most efficiently to get the job done, you must understand that. Um, and we tried to teach that at Joint Force Staff College. When we got there, about 90% of our students' bases were with U.S. military uh, uh, officers, mostly of them were officers. And I tried to decrease that to about 75% to bring in more civilians mm. from the interagency and bring in more multinational so that when a student goes through any of our programs there, they are experiencing uh, jointness and the interagency. And you talk in class, but when you're playing golf on the weekend or basketball or uh, going out for a run or having a beer, you're talking about what you do in your full-time life. So I tried to decrease the number of U.S. spaces to bring in more civilians from the interagency and also more international students. Mm -hmm. And that's how you learn about jointness. But everyone must understand what the others can bring and, and then uh, try to play to your strengths and try to mitigate those shortcomings that you may have uh, in your particular element. Yeah, you know, I, I, I experienced that directly when I, uh, one of my last assignments was at Europol. Right. And we partnered with uh, with Joint Special Operations Command. Right. And, you know, and the, and the response was always as the threat moves out of uh, the conflict zone, the finish looks different. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it may not be a drone strike. It may be a treasury sanction. That could be. That's right. Something else. So it was really um, and you could you. you it was striking to see how information they developed or how information we developed perhaps from financial subpoenas to trace financial transactions could lead to uh, both kinetic finishes and also law enforcement finishes. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, you also um, held leadership roles um, as the uh, chief of the, uh, the multinational mission in, in, in Egypt. Yes. Uh, you also served in a in the, the led the uh, director of operations for NATO Joint Task mm -hmm. Force. Right. What what is the key? So this is a different element shifting from inter interagency or U.S. interagency. What is the key to international partnerships? How does that you know how does that change or how does the emphasis shift when you're when you're putting together these these partnerships? Our, our adversaries don't respect borders, so <laughs> they don't. we. You know, we've got to figure out how to how to, you know, creatively, you know, operate across borders while still respecting differing sovereignties and, 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 and rules of law and, and, and varying concerns. So I'm curious about that. I must tell you, the first thing that I've always done, whether in Egypt or in Afghanistan as the chief of staff of the Combined Joint Task Force or in the NATO, treat everyone with respect. The U.S. is the biggest bill payer, usually in terms of troop strength and funding for uh, any kind of multinational effort. But some smaller country that may contribute 10 people to the cause and, and no funding, they are as much a player as anyone else. And I've tried to let them know they have a seat at the table, that they are valued members of our team, that even though we pay the biggest bill. And in those assignments, I learned a lot about consensus building and a lot about collaboration because they bring something special in every case. When I was in the NATO assignment, we struggled with one particular issue that we had, but one of the Lieutenant Colonels on my staff had worked on the defense minister's staff in his country. Mm -hmm. And he brought in a recommendation that we uh, 
adapted a little bit to fit the, the fit the solution. So everyone brings something different. And, and, I, and my philosophy is everyone can teach me something I didn't know. Yeah. I don't care what your rank is, how much education you have. I don't care what your socioeconomic level is. Everyone can bring something different. And I try to let people know that you have a seat here. You're a valued member of our team and we respect you and your nation and what you bring to support this particular effort. And that's how I've moved forward in uh, all of my multinational and multi-agency type of, uh, of endeavors. All right. So we, we've talked about some of your, and you shared some of your experiences as far as these specific assignments. I'd like to zoom out for a moment and, and ask some bigger questions. So when you look at your entire military career, what did you find most satisfying? Wow. Um, in general, watching people flourish, mm. watching those who work for me, those I mentor, watching them succeed and move on to get promoted, to go on to other type of uh, uh, important jobs and roles. But when I watch someone who's associated with me, uh, whether it's at West Point is attacked, <laughs> watching you and some of your classmates and those a uh, year or two ahead of, ahead of you and those who were, were with me in my military career, when I watch them get promoted and moving on uh, are doing well in a different sector, I feel I get, I feel good about that. And one example is when I was a battalion commander, I had five majors who worked for me as a three, the XO, uh, they all worked rotated through those jobs Four of those five got picked to command battalions. Mm. And for me, that is success. That's a high success rate. They were all good people and all are doing great uh, from what I can tell at this stage of their lives. But to watch them go on to get selected for um, battalion level command was, to me, uh, tremendous. Byron, what I love about your answer is it comes right back to what you talked about from your first assignment, the two syllable word people. That's right. The people in the investment in the people and the relationships. And uh, and it is it's it, it's tremendously satisfying to see people flourish. Uh, I completely identify with that. Well, that's what's most satisfying. What was most frustrating when you look at the entire career? Um in a macro sense, watching people make mistakes that are avoidable, mm. make decisions that they know are wrong. They don't do the proper, uh, put the proper thought effort into whatever this particular task is or action on the professional side, or it could be something personal. But when I watch someone make a decision or take an action that's avoidable that may cause uh, injury or loss of funds or loss of time, and that particular effort was avoidable, um, that frustrates me. And I have a hard time accepting that over time. Uh, we all make mistakes. We all make honest mistakes. But uh, there are some things that you make a decision to do something that you know is incorrect. It's unsafe. It uh, might be illegal in some cases. It might be against policies. But when I watch someone make a mistake and do something that's absolutely avoidable uh that's on the frustrating side yeah i know the first question i always ask is is when something like that happens is, is this a skill problem or is this a will problem <laughs> that's right skill or because will. My, my my response will be entirely different depending on what what it is <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I, you know, we're going to turn in a moment from the Army because you've done so much in the 10 years since you retired. But before we leave the Army, uh, from your perspective now, 10 years removed, retired, uh, but obviously still interested and passionate about uh, uh, the Army, what do you view as the most significant leadership challenge that the Army faces as it, as it moves forward? Well, without a question, sexual harassment slash sexual assault and extremism. Mm -hmm. We have to get a handle on those. I know our Secretary of Defense has made that a priority in his first three months in the role as Secretary of Defense. Uh, I would say all armed forces must get a handle on sexual assault, sexual harassment, and extremism. Uh, those are issues, probably have been for a while, and if we don't turn that around soon, it will take us decades to get that back. Uh, yeah, yeah, we can talk about budget priorities and procurement and new equipment fielding. That's important too, don't get me wrong, but those three issues affect the culture and the trust and confidence of the institution that we call the Army, that we've all yeah. served in and we all care about. But if we don't get a handle on that quickly, those those are going to, um, that's going to be real bad and difficult to turn around. Now, you mentioned you're an optimist. Do you feel pretty positive about uh, the course that's being charted um, as far as responding to that? It's I do. I, I think that the Secretary of Defense, uh, the, serv the two service chiefs I know personally, I know that they're serious about it in my discussions with them. And I think that um, there are some naysayers out there that I'm sure don't want to play ball fairly and don't want to call this what it is. But um, I am optimistic that we're going to get a handle on this. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, the current defense secretary, the service secretaries that have been announced thus far, as well as the, the two service chiefs I know personally, uh, they're going to get a handle on this. And I do believe that we're going to make it right. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, that's good to hear. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, um, so pivoting from your army career. I mean, there, there are some that believe that there are significant distinctions. You actually referred to it earlier, this, this bias that, uh, you know, all general officers have to do once they lift their head up from the paper is issue an order. Uh, and that therefore it's easy. So that, you know, people think that there's these significant distinctions between leading in the military versus the civilian sector. But, you know, as we've shared, I mean, you, you not only were highly successful in the military, but You've become a consultant, uh, an executive coach. You've uh, you sat on numerous boards. You continue to sit on numerous boards. So you've got a unique perspective, I think, to provide uh, in terms of this question. You know, how do the skills that you know that officers, NCOs, that anyone picks up in the military, how do the skills that you learned in the military, how do they translate to civilian life? That that's a very clear translation from being in uniform to being in the commercial sector. The skills that we learn in the armed forces are very transferable. And the four things that I learned most in uniform are how to identify and develop talent, how to build uh, multidimensional teams, how to empower people appropriately uh, with the authority to make decisions to get things done, and the importance of relationships. Those are four things I learned in the armed forces early on. And I'm still learning today, actually. But those skills translate very neatly from being in uniform to the commercial sector. 
whether you're in a nonprofit world, you're an independent consultant, or whether you work for a larger company, those skills that we learn, integrity, uh, just doing what's right every day, uh, and, and being truthful, those are skills that we learned, and that translates. But the skills that I picked up in 33 years in the armed forces, uh, those carry over to me um, in my commercial life uh, as a consultant and a board member. And you referenced a multidimensional team. What does what does that mean? What does multidimensional look like? People who have different credentials that bring different skill sets. And on the board of which I'm a chair, we have uh, two people who are information technology experts. We have an attorney that's on there. We have um, a financial expert, a Harvard MBA, CPA. Um, and we have... Uh, a couple of retired civilians, one from the commercial sector and one from the military, from the DOD, retired SES, and we all bring something different. So mm-hmm. the multi-dimensions are uh, CPA, uh, financial expert, attorney, information technology expert with cybersecurity as a focus, uh, yeah. senior civilian from the commercial sector. So uh, identifying that talent and building them so your team is successful. So that's one thing I learned because um, you take an infantry company, you've got signal, you've got an armorer, you probably got a medic, you probably got a fire support person there and uh, maybe a support person with you. So that multi-dimensional effort um, are the skills you bring to the table, the credentials mm-hmm. you bring to help the team yeah. be successful. So you referenced chairing this board. I, you know, a lot of people don't really kind of fully appreciate what an advisory board does, what its function is, and how it relates to a business. Would you please share a little bit about that? Uh, you have two kinds of boards. One is a board of directors. I'm on one of those, and a board of advisors. The board of directors provides advice to a company. They guide them, provide um mentorship to the senior leaders of this of a company but they have a fiduciary responsibility for the company uh if the company um goes bankrupt then the board has something to do with that because you didn't provide the right oversight if they have a cybersecurity attack the board didn't do what they were supposed to do in providing oversight an advisory board provides advice there's no responsibility to uh, if the company should go bankrupt or if they should fail in some reason, fail a major cybersecurity inspection. You provide advice to the president of the company, his or her leadership, uh, provide advice on a, a variety of things about relationships you have with other businesses that they can, uh, they can succeed uh, in a lot better. Uh, so the boards are different yet they're kind of the same. But the Mm -hmm. big difference between a a director board and an advisory board is uh, board of directors has a financial stake with the company. And an advisory board does not. We provide advice and uh, to the president and his team and try to help them be successful. So as you describe that, what strikes me is that leadership probably looks a, a little different, both among members of the board but also in terms of relationship to the the company or business leadership, and I would imagine, I mean, that it's that 
there's a there's a premium on influence and and well i mean you, you if you could clarify because I, I would think it would be kind of there may be some sort of formal authority but i would think that that a lot of it is is informal especially among members of the board in terms of charting a path what would be really helpful is if you could share kind of a, a specific example of um a success that you've influenced as the chairperson okay i i joined this board in 2015 and i was the vice chair of the board a year later i became the chair because of uh chair, chair moved on to do something else and i became the chair at the beginning we had five board members now we have nine we've had a few who've left the board for a variety of reasons but the president and i went out and identified people that had certain skill sets, an attorney, a CPA, people with an incredible IT skills, because we needed to have that uh, resident on the board. In the last three years, Kumar, this company has increased their revenue by 30% and should even uh, exceed that next year. They've got some uh, contracts that they've, They've uh, they've got with other other uh, other companies and with the government that will set them to do very well financially. But watching this company grow thirty uh, percent in three years is phenomenal, and I think that the composition of our board, the credentials that the board members have, uh, their relationships in other companies and in government help with that effort. But we have a high performing team now between the company leadership as well as the board members and the president has replaced some of his senior leaders because they weren't a good fit and a lot of that was done at the advice of board members okay we, they know people that have got other skills that can come in and help and would fit and help our company improve but uh it, it's a great job to watch uh and to be a part of to watch our success the past Oh, 30 or 36 months. And I'm mm -hmm. glad to be a part of a team like this that's succeeding. Uh, they're making lots of money. Um, and and I think we've got the right board in place now to help us move on and do better in the long term. Mm -hmm. And once again, I mean, you, the, the the theme that I that keeps resonating is this, this focus on people, finding and developing the right talent. You talked about putting together this high-performing team. So, you know, based on your experience, both both in the military and uh, as as chairman of the, of the advisory board, how do you build a diverse and inclusive and a high-performing team? You've got to identify the right talent and you've got to uh, use word of mouth, uh, LinkedIn in some cases, identify those that are not known to you, but you vet them properly and you bring a team together and everyone understands what their role is on the team. Uh, if you're the general, if you're the, a lawyer, you kind of bring maybe not a general counsel experience, but you can provide some legal advice to us in making a decision. If you're a, 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 an expert in cybersecurity, you can tell us how best to protect the company's information so that uh, that they are successful. But we identify talent uh, by word of mouth when we have a board seat, and then we uh, go through an onboarding process to make sure they know that they're welcome. They know what the rules are. They understand what the standards are in meeting attendance. 
and follow-ups if they require to uh, provide response on something. And also, I sit down with each team member and, and identify objectives and goals that they can work toward, and they know mm -hmm. what those goals are. Mm -hmm. And I try to have someone coach this new leader. It could be a board member or it could be another uh, a regular um, military-type job that they are coached and that they have mentorship to walk through the duties that they're assigned to do and be successful. Uh, but I think that onboarding someone in the commercial sector, when they're coming to a company, that they know what the standards are, that you sit down with them and identify some appropriate objectives, some goals that they can work toward, so they know what their duties are uh, for the greater team. And then you assess moving forward. So that's uh, those are some things that I have done in the past uh, to kind of help us be successful. Hmm. Well, you, you had also earlier, you had referenced uh, relationships as one of your four. And uh, we in our in our in my coaching company, we, we use the Lencioni model mm -hmm. uh, for just a, one mo one model that's useful in terms of building a high performing team. The foundation being trust. And I'm curious as to, you know, what is your strategy for forming high trust relationships among the board members? <clears throat> Be transparent and and share information when you can share it unless something is classified or uh, some class some confidential personal uh, action. I share as much as information as I can so everyone knows what's going on and they aren't um, believing that we're hiding something or we're trying to um, not share everything with them. But I try to share as much as I can. And I try to ensure that my words and actions match, that my mm -hmm. audio and my video are the same. So I, yeah. when I'm saying something about meeting attendance or attire for a meeting, that uh, I, I've got to live, I've got to lead by example, basically. So for me, it's that my words and my accents match. And try to, I, I try to learn as much as I can about them. What are their challenges? Are they having any personal issues? Are they having... Uh, a health problem with a loved one at home that they might need some understanding as time goes on. But I try to get to know them <clears throat> and share with them um, that I'm there to help them <clears throat> in any way possible. But uh, transparency, that my words and actions match, and I try to get to know them, that I care about them as a person. And one more thing while we're on that topic I try to show a passion for what I do and the compassion for those I lead. Mm -hmm. If you don't care about someone, you can't lead them. And they mm -hmm. will know. They will see right through that. Uh, so I try to have a passion for what I do in my job, whether board chair or a nonprofit board member or what have you, and then a compassion for those I lead. Yeah. Uh, you know, your response is just uh, completely resonating. I, when when I coach around building trust in the workplace, we talk about four factors, sincerity, reliability, competence, and care. Sincerity being meaning what you say, saying what you mean, and walking your talk. And then care, obviously, uh, if people don't think you have their interests in mind when you're making a decision, uh, you don't have trust. That's right. And so so you're, you're definitely amplifying and foot stopping those points. That's right. 
Well, let me, uh, we're, we're kind of winding down. Okay. What, what, uh, what did you believe at the beginning of your career that you feel differently about now? Wow, that's a great question. When I first came in the Army, I felt that you were promoted or advanced based totally on performance, 100% on performance. And I learned early on that it's about relationships and having a cadre of mentors who can kind of help guide you through a career, help you learn about the Army, help you understand the kind of assignments to get. And it's about being connected to someone who can kind of, um, I don't want to say give you a job, but someone who can advise you what the best job is to go to at that time in your career. But I felt early on, Kumar, that getting promoted and advanced was based totally on performance. Now, that's a big part of it, don't get me wrong, but you make that extra 15% by relationships and having good mentors that can help guide you yeah. and coach you through to uh, higher success. Yeah, I think when when we're young, it's very easy to kind of think, well, this is just all. I remember my father giving me the advice you just said and, and me saying, Dad, I'm just I'm good. It's, I'll, I'll make my own way. I'll make my own way. And, and you, you are so right in terms of the importance of mentoring that creates opportunities and relationships and and learning. Uh, I, I, you, I can't emphasize that enough to the people that I encounter in terms of finding finding a tribe, a tribe of mentors, not just one either, just, you know, uh, a, a, a kitchen cabinet you can reach out for to, to help you, <laughs> connect you with opportunities and and help you solve problems. That's right. Well, if, if you had to boil down your leadership philosophy then to you know a few just key critical essentials, what would they be? Okay, good, great question to, to end up on, Kumar. I'll tell you, the first thing that I tell any leader when I'm coaching him or her or when I'm uh, trying to help uh, a leader in the commercial sector, you've got to know who you are. If you don't are, are not self-aware if you don't know yourself, you can't lead anybody else. You've got to know what your strengths are. What are your shortcomings? Are you What are you doing to mitigate those? So first is knowing who you are. Respect and value all people, no matter what their military rank, what kind of car they drive, what kind of their level of, in the socioeconomic scale. Respect and value all people. They're human beings. Um, and last, I would say, Leaders must act with integrity. Do what's right, regardless of what your personal feelings are. You've got to do what's right. Uh, you may be a decision maker and you may feel one way, but the right decision may be something else. Um, so those are the things that I would, I, would, I would give you about my leadership philosophy. And they've guided me for, gosh, almost 40 years now. And uh, those are things I've, I've, kind of, I've kind of stuck with, Kumar. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, where can our listeners learn more about you and B&B Solutions? Okay. Look me up on LinkedIn, byron.s.bagby. Uh, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn and we can chat. I'd like to learn more about what you do. Uh, so connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, that's the best way to connect with me. And when we can uh, hopefully talk and, and maybe come, uh, you know, share ideas and you can teach me something that I didn't know. Well, Byron, thank you for sharing your lessons learned from a 33-year military career 
and your continued civilian leadership in the, in the uh, decades since you retired from military mm -hmm. service. And, and most importantly, thank you for the many sacrifices you've made in service to this nation, but also, you know, kind of returning to the, the principle you identified at the very beginning, your investment in people and more personally, your investment in me. Mm -hmm. So thank Great. you very much. Well, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Kumar. Thank you very yeah. much.